0: Maybe may be seated. <clears throat> this morning is the second Sunday in Advent. Advent is a time in the church calendar when we uh, look to the coming of Jesus. Um, it's been celebrated in the church ever since the Middle Ages, and it's always been a time of both looking back and looking ahead, of a longing that looks back and remembers the coming of our Lord Jesus, and a longing that looks ahead as well that remembers that the same Jesus who came is the Jesus who's coming back. It's a time of expectation. Uh, Advent comes from a Latin word that means coming, coming of Jesus and waiting for Him. So This is our second week of talking about what does it mean for us to wait for, to long for Jesus. And as we're looking at this, we're going to be looking at the first two chapters of Luke. We began last week, and this week we're back in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 45. This is on page 855 of your Pew Bibles, if you'd like to use one of those. And let me just say again that if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of ours. So I hope that'll be of help to you. <clears throat> so let's look together at Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. And as we turn to this word, let's pray to the Lord who has given this word to us. Let's pray. Father, we say by faith that this is your word. And we pray, Lord that you would open it up to us. Pray that you would speak to us. We are people who are in need of a word from you, our God and Savior. So Father, we pray that you would do that. We come in many different places this morning. Some of us expectantly. Some of us encouraged. Some of us strong in our faith. Some of us come to you tired and weary and feeling very weak. Some of us wondering if we have the strength to believe any of this at all, but we are all in need of you. So we pray that you would open your word to us and open our hearts to your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the house of David, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, And blessed is he, is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And we talked about uh, Advent being a time of longing, and I have some distinct memories as a child of, of my longing for Christmas. There was this one Christmas; must have been about ten years old. It was Christmas Eve, and we got home from a, t- a time with our extended family. It was time to go to bed, so I go up to my room. And I pulled all the sheets off my bed and I built a tent in the, in, in the middle of my room. And I, p- I put a sleeping bag in the tent. And then I pulled out this little alarm clock, I can, st- I can still see it, and, and plugged it into the wall right in front of me. And I laid down on my pillow and just kind of propped my chin up and started to stare at the clock. <laughs> and I watched that clock go around for hours. I don't know that I slept at all that night because I had this longing for Christmas Day, this expectation of what's coming tomorrow morning, what what am I gonna find? What am I gonna find under the Christmas tree? And it was the longest night of my entire life. Maybe you remember that as a kid, the sense of Christmas is here or Christmas is coming, and this this longing, this expectation. Now I was longing for something. Looking back, I'm not sure I was necessarily longing for all the right things. I was longing for what was going to show up under the Christmas tree, but we know what it's like to long, and the point of Advent is this is a time that reminds us that in our deepest needs, we are people who are longing for Jesus. And As we look at this text this morning, we're going to look at just this one aspect of this, that longing for Jesus means longing for the king. Longing for Jesus means longing for the king, and we're going to look at just two things. Who is this king, and how do we receive him? If we're longing for a king, who is this king, and how do we receive him? So we're going to take a look at what this passage says about this Jesus, this king. Look at some of the terms that it uses. If you look first in verse 32, when... The angel Gabriel appears to Mary to tell her about this child she's going to have. Now, if you were here last week, you know Gabriel's already shown up once in the beginning of Luke. He's come and appeared to Zechariah and told him that he and his wife Elizabeth were going to have a child. They're going to name him John, that he was going to be a prophet of the Most High. And now Gabriel comes to uh, Mary and says that you also are going to have a son. But look at the terms that he uses to describe that. Verse 32. Uh, verse 31, uh, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. Verse 32, He will be great. Now, if you knew Greek, you would know that this word in Greek for great means great. It's exactly what you'd expect. But here's the thing about the word great. We read that and it just, it doesn't have any taste for us. Okay? It's like very. Very this, very that. It's, it's sort of lost its meaning. Um, You come home, and your spouse maybe has made dinner for you. We're going to have dinner tonight. We're going to have soup for dinner. That's great. Everything's just great, right? When the angel comes and says to Mary, you're going to have this son, and he will be great. In contrast to this, verse 15 of chapter 1, when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, Instead, you're going to have the son named John. He says that he will be great before the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. It's qualified. You'll be great. One who's great standing before the Lord. But he comes to Mary and he says, your son will be called great. It's used in the absolute sense. All the richness that you can imagine in that word. Not just great soup for dinner. He will be great. The great one comes and says, this is who your son is going to be. Absolute, without qualification. Jesus is our great king. He goes on, he says that he's going to be called the son of the most high. Now this term most high, it's a, it's a term for God. It's used throughout the Old Testament. It's used a few times in the New Testament. And he's going to be called a son of the most high. Again, going back to Gabriel's announcement to John the Baptist, back in, um, ahead actually in verse 76, the other part of the passage we looked at last week. After um, John the Baptist's birth, Zechariah sings this song, praises prayer, and says, Zech- "says John, you will be a prophet of the Most High." What a calling, a prophet of the Most High. But Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, "Your child is going to be called the Son of the Most High, greater than John." Goes on in verse thirty-five. And he says, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And in the Bible, Son of God, much like Son of the Most High, we read that, those of us who claim faith in Jesus, we we read that from this New Testament-wide perspective. We look back in here and we see the divinity of Jesus. Now, those terms in and of themselves, Son of God, don't necessarily imply divinity. Scripture does teach that Jesus is the divine Son of God. But that's not necessarily the fullness that Mary would have heard when she first heard this greeting. Um, Others are called sons of God. For instance, in uh, Matthew 5, 9, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Members of the family of God. Now, again, we look back and we see the fullness of what Luke is doing over the course of his whole gospel and on through the New Testament, and we see that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. That this is referring to this exalted position that he's, that he is given, this uh, claim of who Jesus is. For those of you that have been here for our Sunday school Lessons these past few weeks, we've been talking about the Apostles' Creed. And if you remember the, the phrases from the Apostles' Creed, speaking of Jesus, it says that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, what's going on here? He says, the angel comes and he and says, you're going to be overshadowed by the Most High. You're going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, and this child is going to be called the Son of God. It's interesting that Mary, Mary knew something supernatural was happening here. Okay, Mary, we've already been told, was betrothed. She was engaged to this man, Joseph. She was looking ahead to her wedding day. The angel comes and says, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus. She could have easily thought, when Joseph and I get married, we're going to have a son, and we're supposed to name him Jesus. But it's interesting that she doesn't interpret it that way. Like, she knows that the angel is speaking something differently than that. She's He's, she has been called a couple times in the passage already. It's gone out of its way to emphasize that she's a virgin. Uh, verse 27 calls her that. Verse 34, which is also translated, I'm a virgin here, is literally, since I do not know a man. Okay? She looks at this and says, how can this be? She's not assuming that he's talking about Joseph. How can this be? Here I am, an unmarried woman, a virgin. How is it possible that I'm going to have a child? Now, it's possible that that Luke might have had Isaiah 7, verse 14 in mind. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Luke doesn't make explicit reference to this verse in the same way Matthew does. If you're familiar with the first couple chapters of Matthew, when Matthew tells this story, he goes back and actually quotes this verse from Isaiah that tells of this virgin giving birth. Uh, And Every year, seemingly, Newsweek time, everybody comes out with their article at Christmas and in Easter about, could all of this really happen? You know, is there anything historically reliable in this? One of the things that's often mentioned is that only Matthew and Luke in the New Testament make this kind of explicit reference to the fact that, that Mary was a virgin. And the question comes up, did they just sort of make up this detail? Did they just sort of throw it in? Why is it that other people don't mention this? Well, let me just give you a couple thoughts. If you look at the birth narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only Matthew and Luke talk specifically about the birth of Jesus. Okay, they're the only ones who discuss that in any detail to begin with. If you look at the book of John, when he talks about the coming of Jesus, he doesn't talk about the nuts and bolts of the actual birth, but he actually makes an even more startling claim than this. Listen to what John says about the birth and the beginning of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If anything, you get a more miraculous, stronger picture of who Jesus is from the opening of John. But it's striking that Matthew and Luke both include this point. And it's also striking that it's not a point that you see the the apostles making in their sermons to people, in their proclamation of the gospel. And I bring that up just to say that the awkwardness that maybe you feel, or certainly that our world feels, in talking about this miraculous virgin birth, it was an awkwardness that the first believers experienced as well. Okay, We often think, first century people, They were like us, only dumber, and they didn't have electricity, right? (laughs) Mary knows how children are born. Everyone in the first century did. Everybody knows that virgins don't just suddenly conceive and give birth to a child. And Matthew and Luke take what feels to us this awkward point to make. Really? Is that really? Talk to anybody you know, and maybe it's you, who has trouble believing the story of Christ. And they'll point to this and say, virgin birth. Matthew and Luke speak into a world that would have reacted exactly the same way. And they tell us the whole story. They don't shy away from telling us that. So I would just like to propose, that in one way, it's the awkwardness of it that actually lends to its believability. They really believed this was true because they wouldn't have made a point of it if they didn't. Mary is even given a sign that clarifies this miraculousness of the birth. Okay, He says, you're a virgin, you're going to conceive and give birth. And then he starts talking about Elizabeth. Look at verse 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. What's he saying? I'm telling you, Mary, about your miraculous birth. And let me point to another sign. you Cousin Elizabeth, in her old age, God miraculously giving her a child. He's doing a greater miracle in you. In Elizabeth, he takes a woman who is past the age of giving birth, and he miraculously gives her a child. To Mary, he says, your birth is going to be more miraculous still, that you will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if this question for you, the virgin birth, is an intellectual stumbling block. Let me just ask you to think through that a little bit. Um, Why is it a stumbling block for you? Now, of course we understand why it is in general. Like babies just aren't born this way. We've never seen it. We're not used to it. But I guess the bigger question is, if you stumble on this because you have trouble believing in the supernatural work of God, that he could really do something like this, then I just encourage you to ask this question. Um, Why is it so hard for you to believe that? Because you're making a statement of faith as well. Scripture says, God works miraculously and supernaturally. And you're saying God does not work mysteriously, supernaturally, miraculously. Is it possible that you haven't stopped to question some of your assumptions? Is it possible that the supernatural work of God isn't just the conclusion of our reasoning process. The Scripture presents it as a legitimate beginning of our reasoning process. The Scripture actually says, begin here, start here, that we have a God who has power, who works all things, who can do whatever He pleases. Or maybe for some of us, We do believe in a supernatural work of God, but this just seems a little too much, a little too far-fetched. Why? If you believe that God created the universe out of nothing, if you believe that he providentially holds all things in his hands, works all things together for good, is it that hard to believe that he worked in this way with this one person to give us his Son in the flesh? And he goes on and says a couple more things about this Jesus who's our king. Look at verses 32 and 33. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. What does he say about this great king Jesus? That he is our eternal king. And he points back to the line of David early king in Israel's history that God set aside to rule his people. And He said, I'm going to work through you and your family in your line. By the time you get to the first century, to the world that these people lived in, this people of God waiting for the Messiah to come. Their understanding was that this Messiah, this Savior, this one who's going to come to rescue, would be a son of David. That he would take up the throne of David David's kingship had fallen away. Somehow God's going to raise up the son of David who is going to be king over us again. And imagine Mary and this angel appearing to her and saying, this is your son. This is the true David. This is the true king who will be king over all. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now here's the thing. All other kings die. And all other kings and all other things that rule us and all other things that we look to fail us because they can't last. Gabriel comes and says, This king, your son, will last forever. His kingdom doesn't end. This is a king who cannot and will not fail you because death will not rob him of his kingship. It just brings up a question for us. Do we want a king like this? Do we want a king who is great? Do we want a king who's called the Son of the Most High, who's called Holy, a king who's going to be an eternal king? Because here's the thing. A king like this is bad news for other kings. Again, if you're familiar with the birth stories of Jesus, and Matthew talks about the fact that after Jesus is born, King Herod tries to kill him. And certainly if you know the stories of the Gospels, the king is ultimately killed. Why? Because a king is a threat. He's a threat to every other king. Herod looked at the birth of Jesus and he saw something that we don't see when we see the birth of Jesus. He saw a rival. He looked and he said, if this is the true king, then that means I'm not. And I'm threatened by that. There's a book, maybe some of you read, I remember on my bookshelf growing up, uh, called The King Nobody Wanted. That title sort of stuck in my brain. The king that nobody wanted. Is he a king that we want? Now, he's bad news if you're another king. He's bad news if you're committed to being your own king. This is bad news if you're committed to being self-sufficient. It's bad news if you're committed to self-rule. It's bad news if you don't want someone else to rule over you if we have this eternal king. Now, people in our culture, like all of us, we embrace Christmas. Why? Because we like the picture of Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the manger. There's just something, there's something heartwarming about that and something comforting about that. We all like babies, at least when they're not crying or not too close. But this picture of Jesus, the little harmless baby, the little innocent one uh, that causes us to sing um, such quiet Christmas lullabies, we like that. We look at the nativity scene and we see the baby Jesus and we think something like this. Oh, how precious. Oh, how sweet. Oh, how gentle. But what does Mary see when she sees this scene? What does everybody who comes to the birth of Jesus, the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, what do they see? Not, oh, how precious. Oh, how majestic. This is the birth of the king that we've been waiting for. We look at it, and we like having Jesus as a baby. And everyone else in the story looks at it, and they see not Jesus as the baby, but the baby being the coming of Jesus the king. Now, here's the thing. A king is good news ...for those in need. It's good news for people who know that they are not king. It's good news for people who know they can't make their lives work. It's good news for those of us who need and know we need rescue. Listen to the, the need that you hear in Isaiah 9, verses 1-7. through 7. Again, a familiar Christmas passage. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness... On them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They're glad as when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Those who are in darkness those who are in hunger, those who know oppression, those who are beaten down by war, whether that's the oppression of a physical enemy or sickness and your body falling apart, of life not working the way you want it to, the weight and the darkness of your own sin and your own failing and your own gnawing emptiness of a life lived without the presence of God. For those people, the coming of this king is very good news. The King, Jesus our eternal and good King, is good news for those of us who know our need. Now the other thing the text shows us briefly is how we receive Him. That's who Jesus is. That's who this great King is. How do we receive Him? Let's look at what Mary shows us, what John shows us, and what Elizabeth shows us about receiving this great King. First, what Mary shows us. She shows us that receiving Jesus our King means receiving Him in faith. Look at verse 38. At the end of this, a great announcement. How does Mary respond to this earth-shattering news that she's given? Verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then down later in verse 45, when Elizabeth is commenting on Mary's faith, she said, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary shows us that receiving our King means receiving Him in faith. And are you receiving Jesus in faith this Advent season? Am I receiving Jesus in faith this Advent season? That doesn't just mean, have you received Jesus as your personal Savior? Are you receiving Jesus in faith? Are you letting Him continue to speak into your life? Are you continuing to let Him be the King that He is? Are you receiving Jesus in faith right now, trusting? Some of you have heard the illustration of faith being the the open hand that receives God's gift. I was trying to think of a more seasonally, seasonally appropriate image. Um, some of us have stockings hung up next to our fireplaces in our house. We've got them up for our kids. What do you do when you hang a stocking up next to your fireplace? You hang it there... Hoping and trusting that someone's going to come along and fill it with something for you. What does faith do? It welcomes this thing that is given to us. It receives. It is filled by. And we people of faith this Advent season waiting for God who's going to come and fill us. You know the old Christmas story. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that Jesus soon would be there. And faith refuses to fill our own stockings, to save ourselves, to find our fulfillment, our king somewhere else. Like Mary, what do we do? Receiving our great king means receiving him in faith. And even John the Baptist shows us something in this. Verse 41, when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, what happens? Verse 41, and then Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Verse 44, behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. John shows us that receiving God as our King, Jesus as our King, means receiving Him with joy. It goes back to what was said about John. Back in verse 15, in this prophecy of John, it said that He would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, even before birth. And He responds. He comes and He leaps for joy. Uh, oftentimes, in my own family, when uh, my wife will do something for me, later on I'll say, you know, that, that really meant a lot to me. And she'll say, really? Because <laughs> you didn't really show it at the time. <laughs> um, in my family, we express gratitude by telling somebody about it. Now, my wife's family expresses gratitude in a completely different way. They will literally jump up and down. <laughs> when you give a gift to somebody in her family, you see their gratitude written all over their face you see it just exploding with thankfulness. They know how to receive a gift with joy. And the question for us, where are we finding our joy this Advent season? And is it in receiving this king, this great king given for us? And then finally we see what Elizabeth shows us. Receiving our king means receiving him with praise. We see her giving praise, um, Because of what Jesus has, because of what God has done for her cousin Mary, exclaiming this praise as Mary comes into her presence. And it just brings up this question for us what are we praising this Advent season? What is it that's on our lips? Because we praise the things that we love and that we cherish. We praise the things that capture our hearts. What are we praising this Advent? And what does that show us about? What is the real king in our lives? Now, some of us are in the middle of times when we find it hard to praise. This morning we had Christmas music playing in our house, and I was struck by this line from the Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn the weary world rejoices. Our weary worlds can rejoice in the middle of all that's going on right now. What's it going to mean for us to be people who rejoice in our king this Advent season? I grew up in a house um, that was not in to trains. Some of you guys grew up in train families. My wife's family is a train family. My father-in-law has model trains. A couple years ago, after our first child was born, my father-in-law gave us a Christmas train. And this Christmas train now uh, goes around our Christmas tree, and it plays Christmas carols. And we set this up the other day, and my kids were entranced. Now, I always kind of looked at train families and thought, all it does is go around in circles. (laughs) But there my kids are, just enraptured by this train going around in circles around our Christmas tree. And I'm sitting there with them, mesmerized by this train going around and around our Christmas tree. Now if you notice, we often hear things about, think about our king. Think about his beauty, think about his goodness, and give praise to him. And we come together every week here in this place as a body to do that together. And we encourage each other to spend every bit of our lives throughout the week doing exactly that, giving praise to our God. We really are like that train. We go around this track again and again. At the center of our track is this Christmas tree this reminder of Christmas. Going around and around, and we're, we're brought back, my kids and I, as we look at that tree. What do we do when we praise? We're coming back around and around again, looking at the beauty of the one who stands at the center of Christmas, God's Son, our Savior, Jesus, looking at him from all angles and singing his praise again and again and again. Because that's where we find life. Because in this Advent season, we need to be reminded that we were people created to praise. Created to be caught up in the beauty of this one that we look to. And may that be us this Advent season. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we confess that not only... Were you this baby in a manger? Not only is that a touching scene, that it is the coming of you, our great king. The stepping of God the Son into our world, in the flesh, in our midst, that we might know life. And so we pray, Father, this morning that you would remind us that you, Jesus, are our great king. And may we respond to You. May we respond in faith. May we respond with joy. May we respond in praise. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.